Am I on now? Uh, when the ACM Planning Committee asked me to speak again this year, uh, I was very privileged. I enjoyed speaking last year, sort of. Um, but they hinted very hard that they would like my wife to also speak. And uh, I just, I thought, you know, we've never done that before. I've, I speak and she speaks. I've heard her speak. She's heard me speak a lot, but we've never done it together. And I don't really like to do it because I'm a little bit insecure, and you're about to find out she's a much better speaker than I am. <laughs> she's uh, not only prettier, a whole lot more fun to be around. Thank you, Mark. But she also has her father's prophetic anointing. So there's that. <laughs> no pressure. Thanks, Brother John. But I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her because uh, she speaks with a great deal of authority about some things that um, she has authority to speak about. And I think you're going to see why. If you have your Bibles or your devices, you can turn with me to Psalm 107. Um, Psalm 107. Psalm 107 and verse 1. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Don and I have experienced um, the everlasting, steadfast, covenant-keeping love of the Father. That word, steadfast love, is hesed in Hebrew. It, it can't be defined with just one single word. It, it takes multiple words in the English language to describe one concept that God wants us to experience. His loving kindness, his enduring love, his faithful, loyal love, no matter what, his covenant-keeping goodness to you is everlasting. We have found him to be good, even when things weren't so good. And the only response for this redeemed couple is to say so, is to tell you that God has redeemed us from trouble. Our journey has had what most would see as a lot of waste, a lot of wasted experiences, a lot of wasted years, but we are hearing that with God, nothing is wasted. And our testimony today to you is to simply come along with all these other wonderful speakers and say to you, we agree. Nothing's wasted. Absolutely nothing. I believe that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to purpose, his purpose. And so do you. Because some of you are reciting it with me as I was speaking it. You know this verse but do we always believe it? Think of those two words, all things. He didn't say for some things or some specific things or the good things. He said all things work together for good. So that means if all things work together, 
then nothing can be wasted. In December of 2001, uh, I forced my wife and family into what could be considered a wasted place. I left her and my four amazing kids because I chose to give in to an inward uh, demonic struggle with same-sex attraction. The Bible calls it homosexuality. I'd been in ministry for 15 years. I had been working my way up to please God with all that I could do and realized that working enough for him never got the issues resolved inside of us. It took something different. This struggle in me um, was caused by an adolescent heart wound, and it was something that was pretty much repressed, but it was seething and kind of um, shameful, and it, and it progressed inside, and then finally, after I felt like that I could not do enough to get him to deal with this, I just gave up, and it came close to destroying all that I had and all that I was. I won't rehash all that I shared last year. You can find it on the ACM website. How's that for an advertisement? Just don't take your smartphones out and go looking for it right now, okay? That would be very distracting for me right now, so don't do that. But now you can more fully understand why Kevin and the ACM planning committee uh, felt like that our story offered a lot of hope, offered something that could be encouraging to everybody regardless of what their wasteland was. You see, we all need hope. We all need to know that people make it. We all need to see examples of God's redemption at work. My good friend Curtis Foreman, who is here, always tells me they don't need to see our righteousness, but they do need to see our redemption. It's become a major pillar of what ministry God has returned to me, which is mind-blowing that he would even do so. We traveled through some devastating and awful places that very much seem wasted. But by his grace, we've also experienced some incredible, glorious vistas. And though we try not to glamorize our journey or the sin that was so costly, I think we have had some time to now realize that he can use everything for his glory. And he's using our story. We can say with complete assurance that what Satan meant for evil, God has meant for good. I was speaking with a man just this last week whose 22-year-old son is struggling with this identity issue. And the man was pretty much hopeless, just not knowing who to talk to. That's the way the enemy likes to corner us into isolation and think, there is no answer, there is no hope, no one's gotten out. Just give up. And that's where this father was and certainly where his son was. And the father talking to me on the phone said to me, wow, it sounds like you can really relate to what my son is going through. Thank God you've had this experience. And as he said it, he was embarrassed, and he thought, oh, wait, I, I'm, I'm sorry. And I said, no, 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 no. Don't say you're sorry. Thank God. I thank God. You can thank God that I've had this experience. Because God likes to redeem, and he likes to use his redeeming projects to redeem other things. 
I like the way Johnny Erickson taught us said it. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. In 2009, when our marriage was being resurrected, because it truly had died, though we never divorced, it was being resurrected and restored, Donna gave me a journal, and on it, in, on each page was a, a Bible reference, sometimes just a verse or two, sometimes a whole chapter. And it was, each of them were promises that God had given to her about our journey. Not so much promises about how our relationship would work out, but rather promises had God, that God had made to each of us. That's where the promise of God is yes and amen, what he has said. And on one of those pages was this psalm, Psalm 107. And when I read that, it impacted me because it reminded me that a good friend of ours on our wedding day sang a song that was based on this verse, Phil High. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his loving kindness is everlasting. How interesting that that song, based on this chapter, was sung on our wedding day. Maybe some of you were there. I don't know. There were a lot of people. I don't remember. But that God would use that to restore as well. Not only does it proclaim in this chapter, in this verse, I mean in this psalm, that God's goodness and loving kindness is everlasting. But the remainder of the Psalms tell us in four vivid ways examples of waywardness, of running away from God and his perfect will. Like the hymn writer said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This chapter, you can see great examples, ah, vivid examples of how we wonder. Verse four, some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Verse 10, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Verse 17, some were fools, through their sinful ways. Wow. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. Sometimes God sends a wind which lifted up the waves of the sea and they mounted up to the heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away. Why? Because of their evil plight. They were pursuing God without God. They were pursuing what he wanted for them, rather, without his presence. Because of their evil plight, they reeled and staggered like drunken men. And we're at their wit's end. I can relate to every one of those wayward examples. I was the wasteland wanderer whose soul faints within him. I was the afflicted prisoner for sure who sat in darkness and rebelled against God's word. I was the fool whose sinful ways plunged him towards death. And I was the independent uh, sojourner, rebellious sojourner who wanted to do it without God. 
and it ended up leading to reeling and staggering at my wit's end. As vivid as all these examples are, you'll find the most wonderful words in this psalm coming right after each of the examples. The wonderful words are found after each of these four examples, and they are identical in response, as if this is a song we get to sing, and this is the chorus. There's also a nice little bridge, too. But this is the chorus line, and it's repeated each time. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. Every single time they cried, he delivered them from their distress. He's still delivering today. Don and I would like to share with you some of the things the Lord has taught us in our journey. I have the, this mic, she's got the handheld mic because I'm more of a diva than she is. So <laughs> I will not do Beyonce moves, however... But we want to share with you some of the things that God showed us because we believe that they're pertinent to all that follow him. But we don't pretend that they're plug and play answers to what you're facing or the wastelands that you're experiencing. However, we are convinced that if God can change us through his word and grace, he is able to do the same for you. When Chris first left, I was so troubled. Um, I just thought, I, I don't understand how this could have happened. I, I don't know what happened. We had prayed together. We had served together. We had worshiped together. And if he was walking away from God so utterly, I felt my confidence had been destroyed. I thought, if this can happen to him, I don't feel safe anymore. I don't feel secure in my own walk with the Lord. If he could be deceived, then so could I. Some of you may be familiar with a story in Joshua 7 about Achan. And this was a story that God showed me within just the first few days of Chris being gone. Achan had taken items that God had said should be destroyed. They were to belong to God and God alone, and they needed to be destroyed. And he took them and hid them in his tent. So the next time the Israelites went to war, they lost. And so Joshua went before the Lord and said, how could this have happened? And God's answer was, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have stolen and they have lied. They have, made, they have been made liable to destruction. Hmm. Now, God knew that it was Achan, but he said Israel. He called them out to present themselves tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, and then man by man. I knew that God was clearly saying to me, identify with the sinner. In terms of sin, there was no difference between Chris and me. In Galatians 6, 
God gives us a clear direction about what to do if you're trapped in sin. And I felt just as trapped in sin as Chris. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also will be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. I knew that God was asking me to take everything out of my tent and let him examine me, to search me, to try me, to know my anxious thoughts, to see if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as I began to confess my sin and fellowship Christ in that place, it changed the way I was praying for Chris. I was filled with compassion for the torment that he was experiencing, the lie of the enemy that was crushing the very life out of him. I realized that if we were both citizens of heaven, then this Chris, who had walked away from everything we held dear, was not the real Chris. His current state did not represent who he was, but simply where he was in our journey. See, I told you. <laughs> After about four years of pure misery, I began coming to the end of myself, and I tried to begin making amends with Donna and the kids. And by the way, two of our daughters are here, and they have three of our grandchildren. We have seven grandchildren, and one on the way. We are very blessed. And uh, I won't introduce them because I know they wouldn't like that. But let's just be fun, and, uh, and why don't you try to find them on your own? We'll make it, <laughs> we'll, we'll make it like an ACM treasure hunt, okay? <laughs> One of them's back there doing this to me right now. <laughs> Listen, with relationship to them, I would try to make half-hearted attempts at confession and, and, and trying to start over. Um, but the problem was, as I was trying, I was trying to restore a relationship with them before my relationship with God had been restored. And you remember King David's horrific sin with Bathsheba. See, he sinned first because he was in the wrong place. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And then he, he seduced another man's wife, and he got her pregnant, and he tried to cover it up. Uh, and then he had her husband killed. Whoa. And then he finally was called out for his sin by the, the prophet Nathan. And he prayed one of the most glorious prayers of repentance that is widely prayed. You probably have prayed it. I know I have. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And here's the key verse I want you to hear. Against you and you only. 
have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now by my count, David's sin has caused at least two deaths, that of Uriah the Hittite and that of his own newborn son. It has forced one of his generals to do something of immorality and cause one of his best soldiers to go and be killed. And it has resulted in the seduction of an innocent woman who was simply waiting for her husband to come home from war. A lot of people were damaged by David's sin. A lot of people were hurt. Two people were dead. Yet David says in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now the way I see it, either David is extremely tone deaf, and he doesn't even realize the carnage that is in his wake. Or, God wants us to see that the weight of our sin and the primary offense is against him and not against one another. Wow. John Piper says, sin by definition in the Bible is not wronging another person. It is assaulting the glory of God. It is rebelling against him. Sin, by definition, is a vertical phenomenon. Now, don't misunderstand me. Seduction, lust, adultery, lying, murder, all bad. Very bad. (laughs) But those horizontal offenses are horrible and hurtful, and and you can even call them sin, but what makes them sin is their vertical orientation. Against you and you only have I sinned. Until we understand how serious our sin is to God, we won't be able to make amends for the mistreatment of people. Bridges of reconciliation won't be built until we are reconciled to God. It requires a vertical reckoning long before horizontal reconciliation can occur. Long before I could reconcile with Donna and my family and the others in my wake, I had to do business with God. Things had to be made right there before other things could be made right. I had to see where my sin had caused its greatest damage. And it was in my relationship with him. And in so doing, fully realized that only Jesus could could create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Only Jesus could choose to not cast me away and take his Holy Spirit from me. Only Jesus could restore unto me the joy of his salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. And only Jesus could make it possible for me to teach transgressors his ways and see sinners return to him. So while God was saying to Donna that she must identify with the sinner, he was showing me that my sin was against him and him alone. And we can't be reconciled with others until we, both injurer and injured, have been reconciled to God. Someone said to me at one point, 
in the journey. I just wish that Chris could see what he's done to you and the kids. And my immediate response was horror. And I thought, no, I don't want him to see that. I want him to see the Lord. <laughs> because seeing the carnage would take away all faith and hope. But seeing the Lord gives you everything you need to move in his direction. While God was showing Chris that his sin was against God and God only, he was proving to me that I wasn't the victim. And I'm going to go off script here just a minute and say to all of you, if you see someone that you think has been victimized by someone else's choices, the worst thing you can do for them as a fellow Christian is to join them in their victimhood. Identifying them as the victim separates them from their lifeline of hope and faith in God, and it is the only thing that will save them and woo them out of the jaws of their distress. Don't buy into your life has been so hard and I am so sorry for you. That is weak and pathetic and it won't save anyone. <laughs> so, back on book. Someone gave me a book during this particular phase of our journey called This Is Not the Life I Signed Up For. I apologize to any of you who've read the book. I did not. I couldn't get past the title because when I read it, I thought, that is absolutely not biblical. <laughs> because the first thing I thought of is the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And to this you were called. Leaving you an example, Christ suffered for you, not so you wouldn't have to, but so you could learn how to do it. It was not an escape clause. It was an example, a model, a mentor, a coach. He was telling us, this is how you suffer and get to glory. This is the life we signed up for, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him to fellowship him in his sufferings and therefore experience resurrection life. About five months after Chris left, I realized that God was sending me home to my parents. And I felt that coming home was total defeat. I had no idea how long the journey was going to be. Pretty early on, God said, stop asking me that and just pay attention to what I'm telling you to live today. So. I kept thinking if I stayed close to the epicenter of the bomb that had gone off, that that was part of making it all work out. That somehow my presence, what arrogance, was going to make something happen. By sending me home, God did a lot of things, but one of the first things he did was remind me that it wasn't going to be about anything I said, thought, or did. God alone saves. That was so freeing. Then I was really able to focus on what God was saying to me personally because I could totally trust 
that he was in God's hands. And God wasn't sending him on a journey only if I did the right things or said the right things or was in the right place, that I didn't have to. It wasn't magic. It was a miracle. (laughs) And it did not depend on me. And it set me free to live. And so that's my next point. When I got home, the enemy tried to make me believe that because I had left, Chris was in a different state, our communication was sporadic and usually hurtful on both parties, um, that my hope had died. Chris was gone, and I felt like a fresh amputee. But in praying and, and living in the life, the spiritual life in my parents' home, I realized that I didn't want to settle there. I didn't want to settle for limping and bleeding for the rest of my life. Jesus came that I might have life and have it to the full. That's also the life we signed up for. The abundant life, the message defines it as gushing fountains of endless life. That's the life we signed up for. Does anybody here remember, it's an old Johnny Cash song um, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My dad used to sing it when I was a kid, and the, part, the chorus was the part that I always loved as a child. Um, they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. Daniel tells us that when these young men stepped out of King Nebuchadnezzar's fire, that it had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and they did not smell like smoke. That was the hope that God planted in me. No smell of fire. Once I realized that I wasn't a victim of Chris's sin, or my sin, or the enemy's schemes, it opened my heart to more truth. And the more truth that I stepped into, the more freedom I experienced. Freedom from bitterness, from unforgiveness, from discouragement, and pity, ugly, ugly pity. In the first few days after Chris moved out, the father gave me two very practical things that that would kind of set the rhythm for my life and eventually lead me out of the wilderness. I want to share them with you um, before we kind of return to the basic theme of our message. The first thing that he told me very, very clearly was that I had to declare out loud the words that he gave me. And I cannot tell you the impact of that. If you don't do that personally now, I recommend that you try it. It's kind of like when David said, I said to my soul, why so downcast? It, it resonates in the heavens. It builds your faith. Um, and you can say to yourself, Cut it out. Get on with it. Pick yourself up. Move on. So he wanted me to declare the scriptures out loud. I read the word every day, 
and I wrote by hand out the things that set something off in me, whether it was repentance or it was praise or it was hope or it was a burst of faith. Whatever touched something, I wrote it out longhand. And then when troubles, thoughts, feelings would come that seemed to try to take me off my course, I would declare out loud those things that I had found earlier. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, when your words came, I ate them, and they were the joy and the delight of my heart, and they are. The second thing that Father gave me to do was to worship until I could mean it. Although my time in the Word was very rich, getting out of bed with an elephant on your chest makes it hard to start praying. Don't judge. (laughs) It's not that I didn't think God had the answers and the words of life for me. It was somehow getting started was hard. But I found that if I could start worshiping at some point, the reality of those gushing fountains of endless life would happen. And God's presence would fill the room that I was in. And when he came, I could pray. Lots of times I prayed to him what he'd already prayed to me. I just read back all the words that he had given me. But at some point in all of that, I would find his clarity, wisdom, direction, conviction, which is such a blessing. And when that happened, I found that in the midst of rejection and uncertainty, and just everyday hardships of being a single mom, I experienced the greatest spiritual health and intimacy that I had ever known. I experienced right there in that place abundant life. So even after reconciliation, I had to learn to walk his abundant life also. And many times, I let the guilt and the shame just mess with me and indulge in self-pity, which is lethal. Self-pity is lethal. Like Lazarus being called forth, uh, we found that I had some grave clothes on, and they needed to be taken off and removed. Guilt, shame, self-pity, they're they're all needing to be shed. And this would become obvious when I would be around the kids or Donna, and they would make some sort of uh, comment or tell a story about a time when I wasn't there. (laughs) And that kind of stung. And I'd start feeling sorry for myself, and uh, I'd feel all guilty about the missed opportunities and the dereliction of duty. and, And I'd say things like, well, if your dad hadn't walked out on you, things would be so much better. And they just look at me and shake their head. And it was during those times that my kind, gentle, loving wife would just look at me and say, Stop it! (laughs) That is not attractive. (laughs) It's like those death cloths. They smell bad. Just take them off. Listen, what I was doing during that time was called worldly sorrow, and it leads to death. Paul said to the Corinthians, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no 
regret. Wow. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, I know we're not supposed to like Eugene Peterson anymore because, ironically enough, he said something about same-sex marriage. But anyway, uh, but I like the message because it kind of gets past the barriers of sometimes our, our human understanding. So the message quotes those verses and paraphrases in this way. The result was all gain, no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets, end up on deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful, all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? Wow. You're more alive. You're more concerned. You're more sensitive. You're more reverent, more human. You're more passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. Listen, we don't need to have worldly sorrow. It leads to death. But I'm grateful that godly sorrow leads to no regret. So during the ups and downs of our eight-year journey, I sometimes found myself responding to Chris's choices instead of to God. If he had a good response, I felt my, my faith increase. And when he had a not-so-good response, I thought like I was a weeble-wobble. But God reminded me on numerous occasions to stop looking for signs. Either he had spoken to me or he hadn't. Either his promises were true or they weren't. And it didn't matter what I was seeing. It only mattered what he was saying. So he said to me, stop looking over there for good or bad because it doesn't mean anything. Just keep looking at me. Eyes fixed on me. Just as God was leading Chris to recognize that his sorrow also had to be a response to God, God was teaching me that our Father has the right to command every single one of our responses. You may think that you're responding or reacting, if you prefer that word, to the person or the event or the enemy or any of those things, but you aren't. Not a single response is anything other than to God. So in the midst of that revelation, in the spring of 2009, Chris and I began to realize that God was actually opening the door for us to be reconciled in our real lives here on earth and not just reconciled the way we had been experiencing in the spirit. We knew that other people were now suddenly going to have to do business with God about us, <laughs> including our kids. Their thoughts and feelings and actions might seem like they were about us and our sin and our redemption, but in actuality, their thoughts, feelings, and actions were going to be about God. Part of the obedient response to God that we all had to learn was forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me personally, but but all of us, all of you. The consequences inflicted on him from this are sufficient. 
Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive or worldly sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. I have written to see if you will stand this test, this test of obedience in everything, including forgiveness. Anyone you forgive, I will forgive, and what I have forgiven, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for all of our sakes, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his scheme to trap us in unforgiveness and worldly sorrow. The enemy would have loved to see us waste eight years trying to balance out the eight years we'd already spent. But we had absolute confidence that we had found God's goodness and he had done everything required for reconciliation through his death on the cross. The full debt had already been paid. There was no buying it back week by week and year by year. It was done. Either we're going to believe him or we're not. And we were going to believe because it's a lot easier for him to pay your price than for you to keep thinking you have to pay it. Paul defines the ministry of reconciliation as not counting people's sins against them. And we can do that because God translated us from darkness to light like that. Instantaneously. We experienced that same translation when God reconciled us. It was not a process. We had to figure out how to make it work in daily life. That was a process. But reconciliation is not a process. It is translating. Boom. Darkness to light. Chris and I took very individual paths to come to that same amazing truth. Chris chose Psalm 107 to describe part of his journey, and I'm going to use a passage out of Hosea 2. This is what God said to me. Therefore, I am now going to woo her. Hear the love in that. I'm going to lead her into the wilderness, and there I'm going to speak so tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, her fruitfulness, and I will make the valley of Achor that valley where Achan messed up, the valley of sin and lies and shame and reproach, I will make that valley a door of hope. And that hope does not disappoint because he has shed abroad his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit that guarantees what is to come, the ultimate redemption when what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. God does all things well. We can be confident that God knows exactly the right path for us. Isaiah explains it like this. Caraway is beaten with a rod. Any of you feel beaten? And cumin with a stick. 
but grain is ground to make bread. And that is exactly what he wants to make of us. He wants to make us bread that he can break off and pass around and feed people with. Isaiah goes on to say, all of that comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful. Can you say that with me? His plan is wonderful. And his wisdom is magnificent. Let's say that. His wisdom is magnificent. So because God is altogether good, we can thank him for everything right now. Even for suffering, because it is accomplishing his good and perfect, unflawed will. Chris and I learned to thank him all along the way because his goodness wasn't defined by an outcome. It was defined by himself, the God who cannot lie. Our present sufferings are indeed not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So there you have it. It's hard to put two people into the same time slot as one. But I appreciate your patience with us. We've tried to do the best we could. You've seen some bits and pieces of our story and the fact that God has redeemed and he still redeems from trouble. It's my prayer that you've not heard us romanticizing the journey. Please don't hear that. And I hope that you don't think that we're just merely winking at the sin that got us there. But I hope you've simply heard two redeemed people, one redeemed couple, declaring with full voice that the Lord, he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. To finalize the words from Psalm 104, excuse me, 107. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. And when they were glad that the waters were quiet, he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank Thank the the Lord Lord for his his steadfast love, for his his wondrous wondrous works to to the the children children of of men. men.